Okay, great. Welcome to a very special 45-minute edition of UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. For quite a while now, I've been very interested in the phenomena of China. This monolith of a country with about a billion more people than the United States is slated in the next 20 years or so to become the largest economy in the world and is quickly becoming a world technological leader, if not the technological leader. On a daily basis, you can spend any amount of time at UCI and you will come in contact with students and sometimes academics from China who are on an exchange program. What and who is this country? To be honest, the wonderful Chinese exchange individuals I meet here on campus remind me a lot of Americans, proud, confident, and hardworking. In fact, at this point in time, they may be more proud, more confident, and more hardworking than I see in America. So a couple of months ago, I reached out to social scientist Dean Bill Maurer and asked him, who could I talk to about China at UCI? And without skipping a beat, he recommended internationally recognized China expert, UCI's own Chancellor's Professor of History, Jeff Wasserstrom, who is joining me today. Welcome, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's good to be here. Fantastic. With my lead in, Jeff, can we just jump into it with some insights into the mystery of China. I know it's open-ended and we could be here for months, if year, not years, but go ahead. So it's open-ended. I'll, I'll just mention a couple things that were sparked by your lead-in. One is when you mentioned it as a monolithic country, that's, I, I like your reference of it a billion more people than the United States. That's accurate. I don't think of it as monolithic because I think of so much variation within it. There are people who speak very different versions of what we would call Chinese. There is a national language, Putonghua or Mandarin, but there are very distinctive dialects that are spoken in different parts of the country. And when we think of a dialect can conjure up all kinds of things, but some dialects within Chinese are as different from one another as French is from Portuguese, and others are as different as in the sound as German is from English. So we're talking about really diverse linguistically, diverse ethnically. 90% or so of the population are Han Chinese in this Han ethnicity, but that still leaves, going back to the numbers you gave, that still leaves as many people roughly, my math's not great, as live in the United States who are in China and are not Han Chinese. So you think about that. And we know about Tibetans and Uyghurs, but there are many other ethnic variation as well. The other thing I'd mentioned just about the intro is I'm delighted that Bill Maurer encouraged you to speak to me. But in his school, another school, we have one of the world's leading demographers of China, Wang Feng. We have some excellent people in anthropology, in the law school. So there's a lot of expertise spread around. And we have specialists in Chinese language and literature in the East Asian language and literature department here within the School of Humanities. So there's a lot of China expertise on campus. And the other thing I'd mention is you're absolutely right that if you spend any time on the UCI campus, you run into people from China a lot. There are some 3,000 undergraduates from China, by far the biggest international population. But you'll run into a fair number of people from China who are faculty who aren't here on exchanges. They're permanent faculty and have made a new life for themselves in the United States. And so you have varieties. And those are worth keeping in mind that there's both exchange and permanent location. And also there's a way in which while there are a lot of things that the U.S. 
we, we talk about the U.S. as being in a kind of decline in some ways, but by some metrics, we're still going very strong, including having the most admired institutions of higher education in the world. And that's something that even if the United States is surpassed in some ways by China, as is, is happening already and likely to happen more, there'll be some areas in which we'll still be very strong and perhaps even top in the world. And I think about the fact that the British Empire was the world's leading superpower, military superpower for a good long stretch, economic power. It was surpassed by the United States. But when it was surpassed by the United States, you still had Americans aspiring to go to or teach at places like Oxford or Cambridge. Mm -hmm. So there can be some elements of prestige that have different half-lives, we might think. So those are my, you know, scattershot responses to your intro. No problem. Very interesting. When you talk to your fellow academics from China. Do they have any insights into who, you know, their whether you want to call it former country or, you know, where they've spent a large part of their life in, but now they're in the United States. Is it a fatal complete that yeah, China's on their way to being the top dog or and I guess this is really, you know, as being a proud American who's used to seeing the Americans winning the gold medal, this is really a whole new revelation in the last year for me. And as I talk to people, they will not really think that anybody's talking about this. Now, certainly as I've gotten more involved in areas, particularly I've seen you talk last weekend in a number of places on campus at the law school and also at the Bowers Museum, there are people talking about it and are well aware of it. So any insights into, I don't know, into into that? Well, I one thing I'd say is, again, even you know, thinking about China as a diverse place, I think it's also important to think about people's relationship to their country of origin or even the country they live is can have multiple elements. So there can be a way in which you're both proud of like a cultural heritage, but worried about the political trajectory of the place. And also you identify with different kinds of units. When at the moment when I go abroad, I'm very likely right now to identify myself as a Californian rather than an American, in part because I'm prouder of the way in which the state is moving politically. If I say, if I'm meeting somebody and we're talking about the environment, and I say I'm from the United States, and you know, I don't deny that I'm from the United States, I don't deny my connection, but if you're talking about the environment, one thing they'll say is you're from the country that pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. If I say I'm from California, oh, you're the one who has the governor who is insisting that whatever the country does, the state is committed to issues of that. And similarly, you can have people within China who could be very proud of Shanghai as it's developed and it's becoming this kind of glittering metropolis, but may be upset about the what Xi Jinping is doing as head of the Communist Party and president. And so people have these kind of multiple identities. And definitely now, there's a crucial thing if somebody's from Hong Kong, which is part of the People's Republic of China, the PRC, but has movements there trying to make sure that it continues to be governed in different ways. You can have people who are very proud of Hong Kong and its greater degree of freedom, but very concerned about what's going on. So that's one thing that to take into the mix. I would say that one of the things that really shifted and was illustrated some of these things a lot was the 2008 Olympics. So when Beijing hosted the Olympics, hosting a giant global event like the Olympics or before that in an earlier era, the World's Fair was one way that a country showed it was in the top tier. 
And so there was a lot of, pro there was a lot of, uh, as early as the early 1900s, some intellectuals in China were saying, when will China be the kind of country that can host a World's Fair, that can host an Olympics? You know, how long will we have to wait? Wouldn't it be great if rather than being a weak, bullied country, China at that point was sometimes called the sick man of Asia as a country that had even been surpassed by Japan, a small country off of it. People said, when will this moment arrive when the Chinese people can have be the kind of people that host this kind of thing? When the 2008 Olympics were held in Beijing, this was a big deal. It was a big deal for the government. It was also a big deal for people of Chinese descent around the world, a lot of them, some of whom had been really alienated by the government in the past, even some people who had left China because of persecution by Mao or, and hated the Communist Party. When the 2008 Olympics were held, there was some pride. And the government very cleverly, I think, early in the 21st century especially, began to sort of reposition its propaganda or what you might think of advertising for itself. Rather than saying, we are the country of the Chinese Communist Party, they began to increasingly say, don't forget, we're the country of Confucius. Under Mao, Confucius was viewed as a vile person whose thought had held China back. But it, Mao's successors in the Communist Party sort of reshaped their brand, if we think of this. And I do think of propaganda as a version of advertising. And they began to start these centers around the world that promoted learning of Chinese and Chinese language and were supported by the Chinese government, sort of like on the model of the Goethe Institutes of Germany. And they chose to call them Confucius Institutes, which is very, it would have seemed ludicrous to Mao. Why would we want people to associate China with Confucius? He was terrible. But in this repositioning, in part to try to connect with the Chinese diaspora, to try to get people to attach, reattach themselves, they said, look, no, think of us as the homeland of Confucian values. And to a certain extent in the Olympics, the response kind of worked. That there was, it, the Olympic opening ceremony began with a quote by Confucius. It included though the carrying of the flag of the People's Republic of China. There were events, you know, the center of Beijing still has a giant portrait up of Mao Zedong. So it, it was trying to square those two things. Think of us as both the country of Confucius and of Mao. And so some people now, and since then, I think this idea, this was just a moment of China's rise. And it was easier to feel, if you were of Chinese descent, just pride in that rise of a, of a culture. Now, again, I think there's some tension of this. There's an idea that because there has been a move toward greater, that China was also liberalizing. There were sort of year by year, it was a little bit freer in China to talk about different things. And since then, it's been less and less freedom from, from year to year, a tightening control of censorship and a more aggressive posture toward other countries under Xi Jinping with things like the South China Sea islands and things like that. So now you're having, while you still have some people of Chinese descent who take pride in China's rise, you have others who say, well, I'm proud of the culture, but I don't like what I see happening by the government. And so there's again, and that can even be true within the country, though people can't express it that freely, but outside of the country certainly hear that. And definitely there's been a shift by people who identify with Hong Kong. In 2008, Hong Kong was still being allowed to have a spare degree of autonomy. There's been tighter and tighter controls of it since then. And so there might, it was possible for somebody 
you know, in Hong Kong to take pride in the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Proud Hong Kongers are not going to be happy about Beijing while China hosting the Winter Olympics in four years. Their view of that ability to say that Beijing represents both a cultural tradition and a and happens to have a political order. Now I think people. Are more likely to focus on how they feel about the political order. Interesting. So, since the 2008 Olympics, things have become slowly more controlled. Is that's what I hear you saying? So, I guess the rub is China is this economic juggernaut that continues to build, and the, and the population is materially better off. So their families are more secure. So they have to be feeling good about that. I mean, I guess what is it? Is the general population? Would you say, hey, things are are going well, or or is it? I I guess you know the rub for me is very interesting. Over the weekend, there was a symposium about you know who we are as Americans and. Trying to define that, and just like in our political system, it was frustrating because you know one of the first speakers was like, "I don't even know who I am. How can I define who you know the country is?" And I'm like, "Wow, that is just so different from China. They seem to be much more focused on. They know who they are. They know what what they want to accomplish, and they then they know how they're going to go get it." And In the United States, we're struggling to figure out still who we are, and and maybe that's one of our strengths. But boy, it sure feels really inefficient. And where are we going to go? So, do you hear a question in that? Yeah, that, yeah, that I hear a question. <laughs> I'm delighted you mentioned the Who Do We Think We Are conference that Amy Willance of Literary Journalism organized. This forum for the Academy and the public. I'm part of that enterprise, and I moderated a session on. How the rest of the world thinks of America, but I thought about that, and I thought about all this talk of the polarized split and the idea of different wings within America focusing on different parts of the American past to celebrate different things they focus on. And I thought about it with China. It didn't come up during the the event at, in any of my remarks that we had a little bit of discussion of China. But what I thought about was if you went back to the 1950s or 1960s. There was a real divide in sort of who, what does it mean to be Chinese? Who, 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 who do we think we are? And what it was is you had Taiwan at that point, which was governed by、uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his Nationalist Party, and you had the mainland that was governed by Mao Zedong and his Communist Party, and they had been rivals. And Mao's armies had won. The Chiang Kai-sheks had retreated to Taiwan, and the two countries were presenting themselves as radically different. And if one place Celebrated somebody from Chinese history as a hero. The other place probably thought of them as a villain, and vice versa. If you looked at a textbook in Taiwan, you would see that there was Confucius presented as a great sage who helped define Chineseness and should be celebrated and revered. On the mainland, you had a textbook that talked about Confucius was a feudal thinker who encouraged a slavish mentality, was misogynistic, and so forth. So that was part, and the one person they could agree on was that Sun Yat-sen was a heroic figure, a founding figure. Same way Americans of all political stripes might look back to George Washington and say he was maybe, or Lincoln. Let's say Abraham Lincoln. Nobody can say they're against what Lincoln stood for. And Sun Yat-sen is sometimes seen as the George Washington, the Abraham Lincoln of, of China. So they agreed on that. 
but lots of other details, they were totally, that's not who we are. Flash forward post Mao, and what I was just describing was the Communist Party has been trying to reposition itself to speak for a more holistic view of that by bringing Confucius in, to thinking of that in a way. And so it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. But there are, there are still, you asked about, do people feel like they're doing better and different things. And so there are a lot of people in China who think that the material gains are simply better. When I was in China in the, in the late 90s and the early 21st century, I kind of asked people a little bit. I said, you know, in America under Ronald Reagan, there was this idea that the key question is, are you better off than you were 20 years ago? Or are you better off than your parents or grandparents? And I had some people say, this is such a stupid question. This is the best time in the history of the world to have been born Chinese. Look at how the country is doing. Now there are still some people who would say that. There's a lot of pride. There was pride in the Olympics. And after the Olympics, there was another thing that just led to a kind of super confidence in the part of the the Communist Party, even though it's still nervous about someday falling, when China did better during the financial crisis than the Western countries. And it was like, you know, what country out there, what system out there is, is that, that's more efficient and better? Than us? So some people view it that way. There are other people who were always left behind and thought maybe their turn would be next by the economic boom. And now are starting to feel they were maybe permanently left behind. So they're angry people and people with good cause. You know, there's still many poor people in China. The Western view, often when people go on short trips, they don't see signs of what poverty remains and what concerns there are. There are now people, there are feminists who feel rightly that Mao paid more attention to male-female equality, and there's been a decline in gender equality since then. So there, there are workers who had guaranteed jobs for life under Mao in state enterprises and certain enterprises who now have been laid off. So there, there's a mix of people who, I mean, plenty of people do feel in material terms that things have gotten better. But what started to happen in the last five years, six years or so, is the economy's slowing. So there isn't this idea of enormous growth every year after year. So if you were left behind, you start to worry maybe you missed out on the boom times. And then among people who have been doing fairly well, for a while, having more choices at the supermarket, having more choices at the department store is great. You focus on that. But what happens when people gain a certain degree of affluence is they often start thinking, but what does it mean? There's been a great deal of soul searching. There's been a religious revival in China. The Ian Johnson, who writes about this and other issues for the New York Times and New York Review of Books, is coming to Irvine to speak March 20th. It's very exciting. He wrote a book called The Souls of China. That's the best book about this subject and one of the best books on China in recent years. The Long Institute of U.S. China is going to be sponsoring his talk. And if you go to the Long Institute website when there are details up, but it will be the afternoon of, of March 20th. So he's tracked. That's one thing that's going on. The soul searching, which has led to a rise, rapidly rising numbers of Christians, as well as rapidly reviving attachment to some religions such as Buddhism and various kinds of folk religious beliefs are coming back. And that's part of, you know, a search for meaning, that there's a way in w that's going on. The other thing that's going on is a questioning of just because life is getting better materially, does that mean the quality of life is getting better? If the skies are polluted, if you can't really trust government supervision of things like food safety, there have been food safety scares, there have been and there's a sense that the government isn't transparent about what's going on. When there's a problem, there aren't the kinds of checks and balances on the different agencies sort of watching each other 
that can lead to inefficiency in the United States, but can also lead to one agency seeing a problem that's going on in another agency. In China, it's much more of a singular system, mm-hmm. even if there are you know tensions within it and that. So you don't, and you don't have a a press that will report on a big company that has close ties to people in the government that's violating safety standards, that just won't make it into the newspaper the way it can still in the United States you can covering. So people have started, particularly with pollution, to wonder if the question is not just are we living better than our parents and grandparents, but will our children grow up in a better country than the one we had, which is something Americans often write about. That's something Chinese are, are, are fretting about too. And with the horrific smog and issues like that, that can be something that leads you to question, even if you can't deny it, that, you know, you're eating, um, you're eating better, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we used to worry about, would China be able to feed itself? Mm-hmm. And now China, that's not a question we ask. Mm-hmm. Americans, as recently as the 19, late 70s, when Deng Xiaoping came to America, were saying, we're rooting for you to modernize. Deng Xiaoping had this idea of the four modernizations, and China was going to, you know, was going to develop. And we were hoping China would develop faster. We were rooting for it. We worried about a weak China. Now we worry about a strong China. That's, you know, it's in just a few decades, yeah. it switched. We worried about Japan being too strong at that point. Mm. We don't worry about that now. <laughs> but now we've shifted and we worry about a China that's too strong. Jeff, have we hit on the head of who we are as Americans? We worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me just for a moment. If you joined us late today, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and I'm speaking with UCI China expert Jeff Wasserstrom. Jeff has lived in China, speaks Mandarin Chinese, and is the author of numerous books on this fascinating country, including the go-to book if you want a fast brief on the history, culture, and practices of this great nation. The book is called China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Should Know. The third edition of the book is going to be out. Is it April 2018, Jeff? Yeah, actually March. Oh, okay, March. Yeah, so soon. just coming up. And it's what everybody needs, what everyone needs to know, not okay. should know. But oh. it's, it's, a, it's not, a, not a big difference. It just might mess up your Amazon search. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for letting us know. Jeff, the cover of your book, will it be the same cover, by the way? or It'll be partially the same cover, okay. but and we're, the... we're, we're modifying the bottom uh, picture because it shows now Xi Jinping central. Gotcha. Central. I noticed that. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because it shows two contrasting pictures. One's a picture of the what appears to be the Chinese Communist Party and a meeting in a large hotel conference room. Everyone's in suits. And the national leaders are in the front row clapping their hands. And the other picture is three Chinese youths with bleached and wild-colored hair smoking a cigarette and seeming disenfranchised. Again, this is, could be in a picture of America. You know, we talked about that. Do we have more in common with China than, than differences? I, mean, well, that... I, I, I think we have a lot. You know, we do have a lot in common with China. I mean, and a lot of the rest of the world. I mean, there's a chapter in this book. The new edition I co-authored with Mara Cunningham, who she... Uh, she got her PhD here a few years ago okay. and is now living as a writer and working for the Association for Asian Studies as its digital media manager with doing social media and blogging and things like that for them. And where is she located? She's located in Ann Arbor. And so that cover and the variations of it, the idea was really meant to show precisely that 
the top picture, which shows the youth at a punk rock concert, early 21st century, is to say that actually when it comes to things like global youth culture now and patterns of consumption, music people listen to, shows they watch and things like that, young people in the United States and young people in China have an awful lot in common and the flows of popular culture are flowing a lot. When I first went to China in 1986, I became friends with people my own age. I was in my mid-20s then. But they had grown up not watching any of the same television shows I had. They didn't know the same the music I'd grown up with. They had seen very few Hollywood movies. So we became friends in spite of not having those things that you just kind of talk about as a 25-year-old. I mean, and talk about, I still talk about them now, what movies I've seen, things like that. But now you have, China's become integrated into flows. I mean, yes, there's censorship and yes, there are limitations put on how many movies come in and things like that. But still, my kids are around in their 20s now, about the same age that I was when I first went to China. And if they met a Chinese person who'd never left China, their same age, they'd meet somebody who grew up reading Harry Potter books and having them read to them. They'd have watched reruns of Friends, which is big in China and was big in China. Now, Big Bang Theory is. And, you know, there, there's a way in which it's in step. Sherlock, the BBC version is played all. They would know K-pop, something that people in South Korea are listening to, play the same games, hear the same music, those kinds of things. When I met people who were in their mid-20s on campuses in China then, they'd never been, a, most of them had never been abroad. You know, I studied abroad in Europe and things like that. Now Chinese are traveling, uh, those with means are traveling, they're traveling abroad, they're traveling a lot within their own country. I actually, by, in, by the time I left China after the one first year I lived there, I'd been to more parts of China than most of the people I knew because a lot of them had only done a tiny bit of domestic travel, but now it's a big, big industry, all of these things as well as you know, consumer goods are much more in step, fashions are more in step. And yet the bottom picture, which shows members of the Chinese Communist Party all clapping in, in unison, and in the new version shows Xi Jinping and the other top leaders of China standing together. There's still those 25 year olds, my kids meet their age mates in China. Only my kids will have voted in elections. Only my kids will have seen a television show that mocks the current occupant of the White House. No matter who that occupant of the White House is, there'll be television shows that mock them. No matter who is the most powerful man in China, there won't be television shows that mock him. There's actually, one of the other things is the Communist Party leadership in both these pictures is all male. And admittedly, we still have not ever elected a woman president or vice president, but we do have powerful, more women in positions of power than China does, even though, you know, 50 years ago, you might have thought with at least the rhetoric of the Communist Party talking about women hold up half the sky, and that you might have thought that if there was going to be a place in which women had more position of power it would be China, but it hasn't. Is there a feminist movement in China? You don't do when you speak with colleagues and so forth. Are are women wanting? I would imagine they they want to move up. They want positions of responsibility. What's the sense? There is a feminist movement. It's faced very tough uphill battle under Xi Jinping in particular. This is one of the things where I said things, there are things that are tightening. There's a set of women called the Feminist Five who were detained and hassled because of trying to carry out a publicity campaign about trying to create a situation in which women felt safer taking public transport. And this was the kind of thing that the Communist Party 
used to have to allow space for because they were calling for, they were presenting themselves as being for female equality and caring about mm-hmm. women's rights. And they, they, were, they never delivered completely mm-hmm. on this. But I will say that in 1986, when I first went to China as a 25-year-old, I met the president of the university I was doing graduate work in, and she was a female physicist. And that was a time when no presidents of major American universities were women. Now there are female presidents. The United States has enormous problems with gender equality, but now there are universities, including Harvard and, and others, that have female presidents, and China doesn't. So there's been a step backward in China on gender. So there is a feminist movement. It faces a lot of efforts to control and repression. It's riskier to be a feminist in China in many ways. Uh, But there is very brave people who are are working for this. And there's a great example right now that tells you a lot about why it stays so interesting to be focusing and trying to understand China, even when it's you know, depressing because of things that are going on there that I wish were going in a different direction. So the Me Too movement has had echoes around the world. There are versions of it. In China, there's been one. There have been Me Too things. And there are differences as well as similarities. One of the differences, there's more focus on pushing back against sexual harassment on university campuses is one of the front lines right now in China for this. That's something that happened in the United States. There started to be increased awareness of the issue at universities several years ago, but more recently, it's been entertainment industry and other industries. But in China, Right now, there's a lot of focus within the campuses. There's a much more censored media structure. So the hashtag MeToo versions of it, the government censors with the internet, they try to block things that say MeToo. There's a great deal of creativity in China in getting around censorship mechanisms. And China has this wonderful set of homonyms. So there are several characters in Chinese that are pronounced me, and several characters in Chinese that are pronounced too. Now, you could write out Me Too in letters, it'll block that. And you, there's also the Chinese characters that mean Me Too, well, yeah, sure, they can block that. What people started doing, and I love this kind of creativity, the character for rice is pronounced me, or at least one character for rice, and the character for rabbit is pronounced too. So people started putting up on their, in their posts when they wanted to talk about this issue that they weren't allowed to talk about directly, they would put up rice bunny. And soon everybody knew that, oh, it's a post about rice bunny. This is going to be something about this thing we can't talk about. So this word play and image play is great. There's a, my, still my favorite example of this is the massacre of 1989 that we associate with Tiananmen and we associate with them what happened the day after when a man stood in front of a tank. Government censors all discussion of that. That 1989 massacre is supposed to have, they, they don't want any discussion. And in China, the main way it was discussed was by talking about the date when it happened, June 4th, 6-4. So around the anniversary and other times, you just can't say the date, June 4th. So bloggers or others that wanted to draw attention to it or you wanted to post something about you were thinking about June 4th, can't say it. So people began putting up, let's remember what happened on May 35th. And for a time, May 35th became, you know, got around the censors until the penny dropped. They thought, May, no, May has 31 <laughs> days. So May 35th, that's June 4th. Wait, yeah. wait, they're saying June 4th. I saw that in your book, but I didn't get just until just now. Oh, hey, I mean, I knew it was June 4th, but I didn't know why until, oh, okay, yeah. number. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Let me catch everybody up, Jeff. 
Just a quick update for our KUCI listeners. You're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm speaking with UCI China professor Jeff Wasserstrom. Jeff, how about in terms of academics, do you recall seeing this article in the Wall Street Journal about the rigorous education system in China? And the, the, it was actually a feature article about. Americans who are there, but their kids are in this rigorous system. And the American mother woman was saying, "Boy, had a tough time with some of the rules initially." And in China, teachers are revered; they can dictate things at home. I think the American woman was saying, "This is a good thing for my kids. I'm glad we're here now." Also, recently, one of our visiting professors was here. His kids are in a school near me in Turtle Rock, and they had a math contest. And ten out of the twelve kids were from China, and they were just visiting. And he actually gave a speech in Toastmasters here on campus, where I'm involved in. And he's like, "Come on, Americans, we're not smarter than you." We're just working harder. I'm delighted you reminded me of this Wall Street Journal piece from last fall. It's by Lenora Chu, who has a book out, "A Little Soldiers," that's about her experience sending her son to a, a Chinese school. She's Chinese American. Her husband Rob Schmitz is NPR's correspondent in Shanghai, and they happen to be good friends of mine. I've met their kids, including their son, who features in the book. It's a very engagingly written book that's both personal stories and arguments about this. I would say her point in the end is her feeling became. That the best situation would be something that had some elements of what's associated with the Chinese school structure and some elements of the American one. That we should think about some way to take the best aspects of both of these. That there were problems with the emphasis on conformity and、mm-hmm. and rigidity and in the Chinese case, but there was also they were excited about what their kids were learning. And I think you know a lot of that would be true in in many kinds of things. And the question is, how do you do both of these? Right, and that.、Right. In China, there's a lot of hand wringing about that China that there's catching up in lots of technological areas, but is there as much innovation and creativity as there should be? And in some areas, it seems that cultivating the creativity can work in things like technological development, but in creative industries, things like film, there are lots of American films that are admired in China. There are very few. Chinese films that connect with Western audiences, and some of that can be put down to cultural difference, but some of it is just issues like censorship and the stifling of various kinds of, of free thinking. We also, by the way, Lenora Chu came and spoke about her book here in October, and we had a comment by an education school professor here, former dean at the School of Education, who responded. So that was a great. I love it when those things happen when we have a dialogue across disciplines as well as across countries and things like. That so it's um, you know it's it's a big question. There are also it's one of the things where there are stereotypes and there's a basis for the stereotypes, but there's also I mean it clearly isn't about ethnicity difference. It's clearly I mean some of what's being talked about Chinese students excelling in the U.S. Some of it is we've seen this with other. Immigrant groups that have done very well within in this country. It, it's it's not always just one. And then there's what's going on in China, as well. It can sometimes be a burden for Asian Americans to have these expectations on them. What's called the model minority idea of this expectation of certain kinds of achievement. And there are ways in which there are parallels that scholars draw between situation for Jews in an earlier. 
period Jewish Americans, and some of the same kinds of issues come up. But then there's also this, this thing of the People's Republic of China over there and what it's doing with its particular schools that gets muddied sometimes when we think about, when you talk about who you see a lot of Korean Americans and Japanese Americans excelling with the United States as well. Sometimes people try to generalize about that and think about something to do with Confucian values or traditions. And it's, you know, it's a mix of all these things. And just as there are many different identities within China, there are many different identities within Asian Americans as well. It's interesting, uh, another dad, a Chinese immigrant dad who I talked to about the differences between China and America. And he says that he believes that in China, that the general population, the respect that they have for Americans is that Americans know how to be happy, that we have an emphasis that we, of, of that. Can you just briefly, do you see that too? I see you nodding your head. Well, I, I know about that, that idea. It's, um, I mean, there, I think there are things that are admired about America. There are things that are no longer as admired about America as, as they used to be. And some of the things that loom large in the mainland imagination about America are things that are kind of obvious in this era of polarization and Trump. But there started to be, when there were government shutdowns years ago, that started to be something that was hard to figure out within China. It was too easy for the Communist Party to say, look at the problems China has. The idea that we're a wealthy country and we still can have homeless people is something that can jar in China for understandable reasons. Mm -hmm. School shootings, you know, yeah. from back to Columbine, that was something there was a lot of focus on. But then there's a lot of, you know, still admiration for the kind of freewheelingness of some things about yeah. America. There's there's admiration. One thing that that's shared to a certain degree within China and the U.S. is there's an admiration for people who go from nothing to achieving great things. Uh, the kind of self-made person is big. There's a big attraction there. And Steve Jobs is admired wildly in China, has been. And they have the figure, the head of Alibaba, this giant internet-based sales company, Jack Ma, who came from fairly humble beginnings. There's a lot of distrust of the idea of people who get their position due to connections or, or birth or things like that. Though obviously we have that shared thing in both China and the United States of some suspicion of that. And yet also we have people who rise to the top and we overlook that. And we, you know, we've had our both on left and right in America dynasties, mm -hmm. even though we would say that a fundamental thing about us is distrust of mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But, right. you know, we've had the Kennedys and the Bushes and we've had Trump, who is the son of a businessman. So it's hardly, you know, came into his wealth partly that way. China currently has a leader, Xi Jinping, who's the son of somebody who was a comrade in arms to Mao. So he's viewed in some way, he's a princeling is the term they use sometimes of this sort of. So we have in China, there is this idea, but in crafting his image, they've made a lot of the fact that he was in very humble and difficult circumstances during the Cultural Revolution and overcame them. Mm. So we both have these stories of overcoming hardship and sort of suspicion of people who don't ever do that. So there's lots of commonalities as well as these differences and it's 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 endlessly fascinating to unpick them because you don't want to go into say like there's no difference there's enormous difference i think there's enormous difference in part 
just because people have lived through different mm-hmm. histories, mm-hmm. those shape them. And there are things that, you know, just as having lived through the Depression shaped mm-hmm. a lot of generations of Americans and then living through World War II, having lived through the horrors of the Cultural Revolution shaped people, yeah. just as for an earlier, for another generation, I mean, lived through uh, the horrors of invasion and bullying by foreign powers right, shaped right. that one. Jeff, thank you so much. Boy, we have barely scratched the surface. We could go on and on. I so appreciate the... But then they wouldn't have to buy my book. So, yeah. (laughs) There you go. My wife says, we can't wait till that third edition comes out. So uh, we're looking forward to seeing that. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure.